Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. I was looking at some scriptures uh, today about praying for our land. Most famously, of course, we'll look at it together if you want. Second uh, Chronicles chapter 7. This is kind of the go-to scripture, praying for your nation. Beginning in verse 14, Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. And uh, many times we've talked about that verse, and there's kind of there's some important good news there. We don't need the whole country to pray and believe. God's people have to pray and believe. He'll heal the land for us, right? It's good news. But what happens when God's people as a whole don't? I guess what I'm kind of looking for, and I don't have an easy answer tonight, is there a percentage? Is there a tipping point? How many uh, or what percentage of God's people have to pray and turn from their wicked ways and seek his face and so forth for God to heal our land? You know, on, on one hand, we've got the excellent example of Abraham in Genesis interceding on behalf of a godless city. Uh, he was doing it really for Lot's sake, but you remember that whole conversation, most of you do. I don't have time uh, to read it to you tonight, but God was on his way to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, and Abraham, uh, concerned because his nephew lived there, said, uh, well, would, would you, uh, what about the righteous people there? Are you going to sweep the whole city away? What if there's 50 righteous people in that city? And God said, I'll spare it for 50. Well, what about 40? What about 30? What about, and he gets them down to 10. And God destroyed the city, but he got Lot out of there. Uh, but we see what's, what grabs me about that conversation, and I think you too, is that you see God's clear willingness and desire to spare the city if somebody would just talk to him about it. We also have the example of Moses, of course, interceding for the children of Israel. This was not a godless community. It was a new community of, of God's people. Uh, but shortly after the Exodus, he's up on the mountain getting the law, and they were wondering where Moses was after a few days, and they built a, they had this golden calf fashioned and began to worship it, and God said, I'm going to destroy him. But Moses interceded and said, no, spare him, spare him for your sake. You know, don't let the Egyptians hear that you couldn't, you can get him out of Egypt, but not into the place you told him you were going to take him. And so God spared them. Uh, but on the other hand, look at this. Now you, you fast forward a few hundred years. In Jeremiah chapter 15, going to look at one verse here, and then I'm going to look at what I really want to look at. Then the Lord said to me, even if Moses, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 1, and the Lord said to me, even if Moses and Samuel stood before me, my mind would not be favorable toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. This is Jeremiah, the prophet, preparing, uh, preparing God's people to go into captivity. And, uh, where we're going to spend most of our time tonight is here in Ezekiel chapter 14. Similar conversation going on here. 
And I'm going to read a longish passage, about, well, about half a chapter. Ezekiel 14, beginning in verse 1. Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me. Now you know what the, the situation here is. Uh, God has been speaking through the prophets for years now, for decades, for hundreds of years, uh, that if they didn't stop their idolatry, if they didn't turn from their wicked ways, he was going to judge the land. And judgment always came in the form of uh, another country, another power uh, encroaching on them. This had been happening, you know, in bits and pieces over the, over, over, all through the reigns of the kings and before that during the period of the judges. And now their cup of iniquity is full and judgment is happening. Uh, Babylon is the, is the power now, and they've already uh, begun to exercise that power. And in fact, uh, some of the uh, Israelites, some of the inhabitants of Jerusalem have, have been carried off. The main thing is the city still stands, and it's still inhabited largely by Jews, and they're thinking God will surely spare his city. And they, knew, and they knew these scriptures. They had the example. They had the, this is after Solomon dedicated the temple, and this is after that verse we read in Second Chronicles. They knew about Abraham, and they knew about Moses and these great uh, intercessors. And now we read, again, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 14, Now some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts. And put, them before them, and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Should I let myself be inquired of at all by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Everyone of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart and puts before him that which causes him to stumble into iniquity and then comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him who comes according to the multitude of his idols, that I may seize the house of Israel by their heart because they are all estranged from me by their idols. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent, turn away from your idols, and turn your faces away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel, or of the strangers who dwell in Israel, who separates himself from me, and sets up his idols in his heart, and puts before him what causes him to stumble into iniquity, then comes to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me, I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. I will set my face against that man, and make him a sign and a proverb. I will cut him off from the midst of my people. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. And if the prophet is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet, and I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people, Israel. And they shall bear their iniquity. The punishment of the prophet shall be the same as the punishment of the one who inquired that the house of Israel may no longer stray from me, nor be profaned any more with all their transgressions, but that they may be my people and I may be their God, says the Lord God. The word of the Lord came again to me, saying, Son of man, when a land sins against me by persistent unfaithfulness, I will stretch out my hand against it. I will cut off its supply of bread, send famine on it, and cut off man and beast from it. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. There's some tough, tough stuff in there. And as I said, Babylon was in power. Jerusalem is still largely in the hands of Judah, and it's still standing. That's the main thing. And the people there had high hopes, despite the prophecies of Jeremiah, despite the prophecies of Ezekiel, that God would indeed spare the city. And some of them 
pinned their hope on the false prophets. There was no shortage of prophets who would encourage the people by saying God will never turn his back on this city. He's a good God. He's a merciful God. He's promised to spare us. Uh, But it wasn't the word of the Lord. Uh, And both Jeremiah and Ezekiel addressed this. Jeremiah went round and round with the false prophets. You know, he let them all have their say, and it it tells him, names them. Some of them, they names these prophets, say, oh, don't worry, don't listen to Jeremiah. He's a sad sack. Uh, And then they turn to Jeremiah, and Jeremiah says, get ready, pack your bags, we're going. We're going to be carried into captivity. Ezekiel addresses it, addresses it here and in other places. But some of them also pinned their hopes on the intercession and the prayers of godly men. Like I said, they knew the stories uh, like you and I do about Moses interceding, uh, Abraham interceding. Uh, Jeremiah had already referred to Samuel and Moses. And now here, uh, they're looking back and thinking Noah. You know, Noah's righteousness didn't just save Noah. Saved his whole family, right? Job, when he interceded for his friends, God, uh, it, it, it spared his friends from God's wrath. Uh, so who are they really counting on here? They're counting on Daniel. Uh, Daniel, we see, when we read Noah, Job, and Daniel, we think there's three ancient guys from the Old Testament. Daniel was alive at this time. Daniel had been serving in the court of Nebuchadnezzar for 12 years by this point. He was famous, and they knew he was a godly man. They knew he was uh, in a position of power, and so they thought, well, by his godliness, he will intercede for the city, and God will hear the prayer of Daniel because he's a righteous man. He's another Moses. Uh, he's, a, he's another Noah. Or just by virtue of the fact that he is a, a, a man of influence in the court of Nebuchadnezzar, he can intercede on our behalf with the king himself. But God is saying no. Look at verse 14 again. Even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. A couple of things. Number one, the judgment has to happen. God has warned them and promised them that it would. The other thing is this. These were God's people. These were not ignorant heathens. It's interesting that that when Abraham interceded for Sodom and Gomorrah, even though his interest was in Lot, God was wanting to spare the whole city, and they were godless heathens. God's judgment starts with God's people. Uh, Peter talks about that. It's time for judgment to begin in the house of the Lord, but we'll give you an example sticking right here in this same neighborhood. If you'll turn back a few pages to Ezekiel chapter 9, I'll read about the first six verses. Ezekiel 9, beginning in verse 1, Then he called out in my hearing, he's got a, he has a vision from the Lord, and he, has a, he called out in my hearing with a loud voice, saying, Let those who have charge over the city draw near, each with a deadly weapon in his hand. And suddenly six men came from the direction of the upper gate, which faces north, each with his battle axe in his hand. These are angelic beings he's seeing. One man among them was clothed with linen and had a writer's inkhorn at his side. They went in and stood beside the bronze altar. Now the glory of the Lord of Israel had gone up from the cherub where it had been to the threshold of the temple. And he called to the man clothed with linen who had the writer's inkhorn at his side. And the Lord said to him, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said in my hearing, Go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare, nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, 
uh, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone on whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who were before the temple. Now, I love this passage. Uh, when, I, when we were back in Ezekiel uh, many, many moons ago on Sunday mornings we were on our journey through the Bible, what I pulled out of this passage, and again, what I love about it is God's kind of setting the bar kind of low. When he goes in there, the people who are spared in this passage, uh, the only qualifications it lists for being spared are those who sigh and cry about the abominations being done. They might not be able to do anything. They might not be bold enough to say anything. But at least they are at a point where these abominations, where this sin in the house of the Lord, in the temple gates, bothered them. And this is how far the city of Jerusalem, let alone the rest of Judea, this is how far the city, God, the city of God, city of David, had fallen uh, so low that all these abominations, by and large, didn't bother anybody. It's just this is how it is. But what we're looking at tonight is that God's judgment on the land is starting at the temple. All right? Remember when Moses prayed for the children of Israel, when we, which we referred to, right after they, they left Egypt, they, uh, they were all babies, spiritually speaking. There's, there's still no excuse. We've talked about this many, many times in here, over and over. Considering everything they had witnessed, these manifestations of God's power with the plagues and the, you know, the, the, the visible manifest, manifestations, the cloud and the pillar of fire, the manna, the parting of the Red Sea, drowning of Pharaoh's army. They'd seen all this, so there was still no excuse. But, they were, but it was still brand new. This was, this was still new to them in the grand scheme of things. It, it had been less than a, a year you know, by the time they left Sinai. Uh, But by Ezekiel's time, they had had hundreds of years as a nation, as God's people, to mature, to develop, and to learn as a nation. And they remained stiff-necked. That phrase, stiff-necked, by the way, that shows up in the Zach Neese book that I keep recommending, How to Worship a King. He talks about this, how God uses this phrase a lot. You are a stiff-necked people. And he says, if you put, put your hand on the back of your head and tighten up your neck muscles and try to... It's kind of an isometric exercise. You're trying to force your head downward, while you, but with your head you're trying to push your hand back. He says that's what it's like. That word stiff-necked is one who refuses to bow in submission. Refuses to take that posture of submission to God. So back to verse 14, or sorry, back to chapter 14 in Ezekiel. Go back to verse 9 and look at that. Did that catch anybody's eye? And if the prophet is induced to speak anything, I, the Lord, have induced that prophet. And I will stretch out my hand against him and destroy him from among my people. Does that bother you? Because it kind of bothers me. It kind of reminds me of that uh, scene in First Kings chapter 22. Do you remember when Jehoshaphat went to visit? Jehoshaphat, the, uh, the righteous king of uh, Judah, went to visit King Ahab, the unrighteous king of Israel, and they're chatting, and uh, Ahab says, hey, you know, these two cities over here, uh, I was at Ramoth Gilead or someplace, he goes, you know, we still haven't taken those back from these, these other nations. Will you go into battle with me? And Jehoshaphat said, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, and my people are with you, and my horses are with you, but before we go, let's inquire of God. Let's, let's get a prophetic word on this. And so uh, Ahab brings out his 
hired guns, 400 prophets, I think. He had had a whole team of prophets that came out to prophesy. Shall I go up against them? And they're like, oh, yes, king, go up against them. You shall surely prevail. And they turn it into this celebration. They're taking turns prophesying this one dude. uh, I I didn't have it in in, in my notes to look at, so I don't remember the guy's name, but it names him. He actually fashions these iron horns like the horns of a bull and he's running through the crowd going thus shall the king of israel gore his enemies it's going to be a slaughter and they're all just cheering and and jehoshaphat can see right through this he says you know is there not one prophet of god here he knows these are just hirelings and ahab says well there's micaiah but uh, i don't like him because he only prophesies bad things about me and Jehoshaphat says, oh, don't say that. Bring him out here. And so Micaiah comes out. And, what do you say, Micaiah? Listen, all these prophets say, go. It's going to be good. So why don't you just say what they say? So he stands before the king. What do you say, Micaiah? Oh, go. It's going to be great. And the king can tell he's being sarcastic. He says, you, he says why don't you tell me what you really think? So he does. He says, uh, and he tells him this vision. You know, I saw Israel, all of Israel scattered as sheep without a shepherd. And, uh, and then he says, I'll tell you what I saw. The hosts of heaven were standing before God. And God said, what can I do to get Ahab to go into battle so he'll be killed? You have to understand, Ahab had been given chance after chance, opportunity after opportunity to repent. And he just didn't. And so his cup of iniquity was full. God knew that there was no way Ahab is ever going to turn back to him. So it's, it's time for his judgment. He's already determined he's going to die in battle. And so uh, uh, Micaiah paints this picture of God in the hosts of these angels saying, what can we do to get Ahab to go out? And it said, one spirit put himself forward and said, I know what I'll do. I'll go forth and I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. And I'll tell him, you said to go. And so God says, go do that. And we said, God sent a lying spirit did God do that? Did God authorize this lie? And there's a, there's a couple of different answers to that. This could just be a word picture that Micaiah is painting. It might not be a, a real conversation. I kind of think it was. But also, do you remember in Job where the sons of God presented themselves before God and Satan also came before God? Uh, I believe this was an evil spirit. This was a demon who said, I'll go, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. And God simply permitted this to happen. So anyway, uh, kind of the same thing here. When it says, if the prophet is induced to speak anything, and I know there's different wordings of this depending on your, tra- uh, your translation, but they all say pretty much the same thing. I, the Lord, have induced that prophet. So it's like, we're talking about, he's talking about the false prophets here. So is God speaking through them falsely? Is he the one who's truly inducing them to speak? Well, there's a couple possible answers to that too. One is that these prophets, we know from their practice, had a strong inclination to lie. They wanted to say things that just made the people happy because that made them like the prophets more, and that was their means of support. So God simply let them. They had a strong inclination to lie. And God, by not restraining them, by not shutting their mouths, in that sense, he induced them to go ahead and lie or falsely prophesy. Or, and I kind of like this explanation better, uh, you ever tell your kids something like, uh, if you'll do A, B, and C by such and such a time or by such and such a day, we will do this. If you will clean your room, 
get your homework done, and say two memory verses. We'll go to the movies, or we'll go to a restaurant. And you tell them, here's when it's got to be done by. And then they don't do it. And so you pull the plug on it. Do they ever say, yep, my bad. (laughs) Sorry, stupid me, didn't get my room clean. Guess we're staying home. No, what do they say? Not fair. You said we would go. And when that happens, has anybody ever experienced this besides me? All right. When that happens, do you ever say anything like, yep, it's all my fault. Yep, you're right. I told you we'd go, and now I'm changing my mind because I'm a meanie. You ever just get sarcastic like that? I think that's kind of what God's saying. If, if a prophet is induced to speak, to, to speak lies, it's all, it, I'm the one that did it. It's like these prophets are prophesying in my name, and I'm getting the credit for saying these things that don't come true. Because I'm going to turn right around, stretch out my hand against the prophet, and I'm going to stretch out my hand against those who inquired of these false prophets when I've made my prophets known in your midst. Anyway, so we've got this dilemma still, coming back to this original point. We've got this dilemma, this tension, where on one hand it says, if my people will humble themselves, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, I'll heal their land. And then on the other hand, we've got this. Some people who are trusting God to heal their land because God said that and because there's godly men in the country, are there just not enough? Because we know it's not going to work. Jerusalem's not going to be saved. Temple gets knocked down. The walls get knocked down. People are carried off. Well, here's where we land, I think. Back in verse 14, Ezekiel 14, 14, again, even if these three men, Noah, Daniel, and Job, were in it, they would deliver only themselves by their righteousness, says the Lord God. And I'm thinking now, I'm thinking of America. There is no doubt at all in my mind that America is what it is today because of the righteous prayers and the godly work of Christian Americans throughout our history. God has honored those prayers, those laws, the godly foundation of this country, and he's blessed us. And for most of America's history, our policies and our laws have reflected that clear Judeo-Christian heritage. It is just as clear, sadly, that we are accelerating as a nation away from that heritage. We're not just drifting away. We're picking up speed. We're moving away from that framework. We're moving away from that foundation. And I cannot point to a chapter and verse in Revelation or anywhere else in the Bible that unequivocally speaks of the United States of America or about judgment on America or about God sparing America. There are some things we can read where we can say that might be, but we, don't, we just don't see anything that categorically indicates one way or the other. So what's the future of our country? All I can tell you is historically... Nations don't last long. Most nations don't last long. Especially free nations don't last long. You've heard this stuff probably as much as I have or more. Nations have risen and fallen over the centuries. And I believe God is America's only hope. If America doesn't turn back to God, America will suffer loss. We will cease to be prosperous. We will cease to be strong. 
And yet I still cling to Second Chronicles chapter 7. My people will humble themselves, etc. So I believe the church must rise up. Unfortunately, the news on that front is bleak as well. And you look at the church as a whole. Whole denominations are dying off or turning from the clear instruction of Scripture on many different issues. So what do we do? Do we just throw up our hands and say, clearly we're headed for judgment? Do we give up? No, of course. We still pray. Why? We are not praying. We, here's what we, we have to grasp, and it's not a pretty thought. At the end of the day, though, America doesn't have to be delivered for you to be delivered, for me to be delivered. Jerusalem didn't need to be saved for Daniel to be delivered. And what he's saying in this verse, Noah, Daniel, and Job, if they were praying for the city, the city would still fall and they'd die with it. He doesn't say that. Say, Noah, Daniel, and Job, uh, if, they stood, if they still lived in the city, the city's still going to fall, but I'm going to save Noah, Daniel, and Job. I pray for the sake of America. Not for my sake. When I, when I pray for the nation, I'm not praying for the nation so I'll be okay. I'm going to be okay. You're going to be okay, right? God's promised to take care of us. I'll never leave you or forsake you. I pray for the nation's sake. Turn And, and we say this too. If we're honest, most of us would say something like, you know, I try, but I'm no Noah, Daniel, or Job. So I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 9. And we're getting close to the end here. Perfect timing, I think. Daniel chapter 9. It's really worth reading this whole chapter, but we're, uh, we do need to be wrapping this up, so I'm just going to read a few verses. Uh, let's begin in verse 4. It says, I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession and said, O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned and committed iniquity. We have done wickedly and rebelled, even by departing from your precepts and your judgments. Neither have we heeded your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings and our princes, to our fathers, and all the people of the land. And it goes on and on like this. And what first thing that grabs me and touches me about this is Daniel saying we. He doesn't say your people only. He doesn't say everybody else, even though he's already been identified as one of the righteous. He's talking about we as your people have sinned. So he goes on with this prayer of confession. Acknowledges that everything God is doing is nothing more or less than God told them specifically he was going to do, going clear back to Deuteronomy at least. And then get down to verse 16. O Lord, according to all your righteousness, I pray, let your anger and your fury be turned away from your city, Jerusalem your holy mountain, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people are a reproach to all those around us. Now, therefore, our God, hear the prayer of your servant and his supplications, and for the Lord's sake, cause your face to shine on your sanctuary, which is desolate. 
O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. This is a beautiful prayer. He's praying here for the restoration of Jerusalem. You might not realize this, but looks like this prayer has taken place about 50 years after the fall of Jerusalem. He's been gone a while. This is just a few years before Cyrus is going to release Nehemiah and a bunch of Jews to go back to Jerusalem to do what? Restore the city. Rebuild the walls. Rebuild the temple. His, he's praying this prayer shortly before it's going to happen. I believe God orchestrated this. God moved on Daniel to pray this at this time because he's getting ready to do it. Finally, with Daniel, and praise and worship team, you can be making your way back up here. We recognize, while he certainly deserves a place uh, of recognition and honor as one of the godly men of the Old Testament. It's a comfort to me that Daniel, one of the, and I believe one of the reasons he was held in such high regard by God and, uh, and, and is held in such high regard in the word of God is because of his humility. When he prayed, he prayed we. And when he prayed, when he got specific there about what he was requesting for Jerusalem, he said, it's not because of our righteous deeds. And Daniel had been a good representative. He, you know, I think sometimes we'd have the inclination, if we were Daniel, to say, look how I have held to the faith all these years. I've been here in captivity for 60, 65 years at this time, whatever it is. And uh, man, I didn't bow down. I interpreted the king's dreams. I preached boldly. I interpreted the handwriting on the wall. I went into the den of lions because I refused to compromise at all. So for my sake, I'm asking you to turn from your wrath in Jerusalem. doesn't say that. He says, we've sinned. We, your people, have sinned, and it is not because of our righteous deeds that we pray. It's because of your great mercy that we pray. And it's not for our comfort that we're praying. We're praying for the glory of your name. We want the world again to see how great you are. And again, where I started to go, finally, with Daniel, we recognize that everything we need to qualify as a man or woman of God, a man or woman of God whose prayers can be history-making, has already been done by Christ. James says, the effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous man avails, avail much. So if our prayers, if we pray fervently, and if we pray, if, if our prayers are offered in faith, that means they're effective, the only qualifier left is righteous. And thank God we don't have to look to ourselves to see, am I righteous enough for my prayers to matter? Because the righteousness that I'm praying from is the very righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. I am in Christ. 
And so when I pray to my God, that prayer is being offered with fervency, it's being offered with faith, and from a, an, a bedrock of unshakable, unchallengeable righteousness because it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Stand up with me. This is an awesome thing to be counted as righteous. But it's not our righteousness, it's his. It's because of his great mercy, his great love, his favor, his grace, that he has given us this righteousness. But it's a huge, huge thing. I don't think we realize, I don't think we appreciate often enough just what that does in terms of the power of our prayers. The effectual, fervent prayer prayer of a righteous man avails much. Are we praying? And are we praying, believing that our prayers make a difference? Here's the thing, though. The only people that can claim that position, that can claim that privilege, are believers. Romans chapter 10. Well, there it is. If you'll uh, confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in your heart God has raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Just like Daniel said, we're all, we've all sinned, we've all violated your law. And even before the cross, Daniel knew that his, righteous was, his righteousness wasn't measured in how well he kept the law. His righteousness was the result of God's mercy. Daniel was looking forward to the cross. We look back to the cross. We look at that cross and realize that's where Jesus died, that's where he suffered, that's where he bled as payment for our sin. The cross is an ugly thing and it's a beautiful thing. But it was all done there. You can't talk him out of it. He's already died for your sin. What's your part? To believe it. To humble yourself enough to say, I needed that. I couldn't have saved myself. No matter how hard I try, no matter how good I am, I'm not good enough for God. I've missed the mark. Somebody had to die. And thank God it was Jesus. But he rose from the dead. He rose in victory over death and the grave. And he offers us that same victory, that same strength, that same life, that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead can dwell in you. When you're there, when you've made that decision, you are among the righteous. And when you're among the righteous, you have power, you have standing, you have authority to pray for you, your family, your community, and your nation. Amen. I'm going to pray a prayer, and we're going to sing. If you want to give your heart to Jesus Christ tonight, to be among the righteous, here's what you get. You get saved from hell. You get saved into heaven. You become a part of the family of God. The creator of the universe is your loving father. And you get to be part of God's purpose in this world starting now. Your prayers will make a difference once you are among the righteous. I'm going to pray. We're going to sing. You want to make that decision? Come up here as soon as we start singing. I would love to pray with you. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your righteousness. Help us to never take that for granted, Lord. 
We want to live. We want to walk in paths of righteousness. We want to honor you with our lives as a gift to you, Lord God, but remind us constantly that we are not earning our righteousness. It's a free gift. It is the righteousness of your son, Jesus Christ, that you've clothed us with and help us never to pray any other way than knowing we are standing on that firm foundation, that we stand before you washed clean by the blood of Jesus and that our prayers matter. Remind us how much our prayers matter and then remind us to pray, to take these opportunities to pray for our nation. And we pray, Lord God, that there is a move among your church across this nation, that we would all, all who are called by your name, would indeed humble ourselves, seek your face, turn from our wicked ways, and hear our prayer to heal this land. I thank you, Lord, for your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, I'm trusting you to do now what only you can do. Convict the sinner, convict the lost of their need for Jesus. I pray if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who does not know you as Father, Lord God, does not know Jesus Christ as Savior, that they would come to know you tonight. Grant them that humility. Give them the wisdom to seize this opportunity and the boldness to come and receive that free gift of eternal life, eternal life tonight. In Jesus' name, all the believers said... Amen. God bless you as you come. Let's go ahead and sing. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.